Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears on Dublab. And today it's my supreme pleasure to introduce someone who really needs no introduction. Susie Quattro broke barriers and rewrote the rules for women in a male-dominated rock culture. And when once asked whether women have balls, Susie, what did you say? I said, yes, we have balls. We keep them in our head where they can't get kicked. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a perfect line. Um, when did you, just out of curiosity, when did that thought first occur to you? Oh, God. As soon as I realized that there was a difference between the sexes, I guess. And I decided that uh, I decided that I would obtain balls as well. I think you were born with them. So, you know, you came down with them already. Yeah, you, you can't develop them. You can't grow up here. They, they've got to be. It's, it's an attitude. You know, it's an attitude. So, Susie, you're a singer, songwriter, bass player, band leader, actress, radio presenter, poet. I mean, there really is only one Susie Q. Um, and for this reason, Susie Q has quite rightfully been hailed as the first lady of rock and roll. Um, so, Susie, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Um, it's such a pleasure. And, and how have you been dealing with this lockdown? Well, I've been just being creatively ridiculous um i've written 14 tracks for the next album with my son and i'm still writing i can't seem to stop writing at the moment and you know you have your dry period so when this is happening i'm just at the either the piano or the guitar all the time um i've assembled from scratch which comes out next month the uh, illustrated lyric book that I've always wanted to do. My poetry book was called Through My Eyes. It's a uh, coffee table size. And this one's called Through My Words. And uh, I'm working on my third book now. Plus, I've been doing the script for the movie, and the guy will be done with it July, mid-July 17th. He delivers the script. So I've been ridiculous busy, plus my bass lines on the internet I've been doing. I did 50 of those. They took a lot of work. I did 10... Um, Sunday specials. I I can't not create, I guess. And I think that is clear. You're a, a force of permanent um, creative energy. And, you know, and some people just are. It's like the time here feels limited, you know, in terms of just, well, while we're, while we're here, we have to do what we can do. Absolutely. I, I use every minute. That's just me. So we first met originally, um, actually pretty recently, six months ago or so, um, at the She Rock Awards. Um, and from that night, you know, there was one person I, I had to connect with for some reason. And, uh, and it was you. And, you know, since we met, it feels like um, we've known each other for much longer than six months. I think we have. And it was me that came up to you. Isn't that funny? I had to tell you something, which we don't need to go into because it's private. But I came to you. I had to tell you something, didn't I? You did. Yeah. And I couldn't not say it, you know. So we'll leave that there. But, yeah, I think we've known each other a very, 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 very long time. We're both very old souls, by the way. Definitely. And we both um, we both have a, a, a love of Elvis. I mean, I didn't even which is crazy. I didn't even realize that about you and that first track that imprinted, which we'll get to in, in a minute. Um, but also just that sense of not really seeing, you know, gender and just feeling like a, a being really. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I've just never, all the, everybody's always asking me, how did you feel being the only girl? And I kind of go, 
What? Because I just never thought of myself that way. Sure, I'm a girl, but does it matter? <laughs> does it matter? <laughs> I don't think so. No, no. Um, when it's all, it's that box, it's the labels and the boxes. And I think a lot of people need to understand things through boxes and through labels. And when you don't really see that, when you see things as, as limitless, you know, it's very bizarre in some ways that everyone comes with these categorizations. Yes, and that's one thing I think you'll 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 think you'll say it yourself anyway. I'll say it for you. That comes out of the documentary. I I refuse all my life. I refuse to be categorized or boxed in. You can't do it to me. I won't let you do it to me. Because as soon as you do that, I'm going to change shape. Don't give me limits. The world is limitless. I've always said that. There's nothing you can't do if you want to do it. Except maybe pee standing up. You know. <laughs> I tried that. I tried that a few times. (laughs) (laughs) That's when my balls let me down. Oh, so the subject of this show um, is, you know, it's called Orange Juice for the Years. Um, the title is taken from a line written by Oliver Sacks about the power of music and how deep it really goes. Um, and that line is, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. Um, and I just want to know, Susie, what does that quote mean to you? It's um, one zillion percent correct. Uh, music can, God, where would it be without it? You know, there there are certain songs you immediately cry to. I do. And in fact, I'm a very mood girl, so I know myself very well. And if I'm in the mood to need a good cry... I know exactly which songs to put on. If I'm in the mood to transport myself back to my youth, I know which song to put on. Whatever I need to do, I will put on that kind of music. And it's it's invaluable. Oh, my God, what a wonderful profession I'm in. You can go out there and sing a song, and people are uplifted. Jeez. Wow. And sometimes I can't believe they pay me for it, you know? I've said it many times. I'm up there doing a show, maybe 10,000 people, and I go... You're paying me to do this? Are you crazy? You know, because <laughs> I I just love I love entertaining people. I love me. I love making people happy. When also something you said which really really sort of stuck out is you're an entertainer, but you're also a communicator, really. Yes. Yeah. This is why, Beanie. This is why I do. I'm not being greedy. I just like to communicate in whichever avenue is presented to me. So if it's an acting, oh, great, I'm going to communicate that role. If it's my poetry, communicate that way. If I'm on stage, I communicate that way. If I'm doing a DJ, like I did for 15 years on BBC Radio 2, um, I'm communicating that way. I need to reach out to people pretty much all the time. And that's what I'm like. So going back to... uh little Susie um, and you know the the subject of this show what was the first song that imprinted on you the first moment for me was um, it actually affected my entire life this one pivotal moment my entire life I've carried this on my shoulder I was um, five and a half not six yet 
I think it was December, January, I even looked up the date, and we were all watching the Ed Sullivan Show, which was essential viewing for all American families. Came out at 8 o'clock, variety show, and at the end of the show, he would always say, and now something for the youngsters, and he would play one of the either whatever it was in rockabilly rock whatever uh you know one of these upcoming singers bands whatever and um he brought on elvis presley and my sister was nine one of my sisters nine years older and she started to scream because she was i was uh five she was like 14 15 and i'm looking at her thinking why why are you screaming i didn't get it i was only a little girl and then i went into the camera and i went into the show and elvis drew me in like a magnet he was doing Don't Be Cruel, and I was hypnotized. And he went, mm, and I was gone. And in my head, in my head at that age, I said, I am going to do that. That's a true story. I didn't embellish that. I had my light bulb moment at that age. Okay, well, with after that perfect description, I feel like I'm there with you. Um, let's have a listen to Don't Be Cruel by Elvis Presley. Mm. <laughs> you know I can be found Sitting home all alone If you can't come around At least please tell the phone Don't be cruel To who hard is true and that was Don't Be Cruel by Elvis Presley. And you're listening to uh, Susie Quattro's Orange Juice for the Ears. And uh, you first heard that, Susie, when you were, you were saying when you were five and a half. And you remember the date. And your sister initially was the one who was kind of first responding. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so what was that, you know, after that m- moment of sort of seeing what you were then going to do really clearly you know, just take us back to that living room. How did that play out afterwards? Did your family come in or? No, no, they did. I was on my own with that thought. But um, it, it brought me into that rock and roll thing, you know. And then I used to sneak and listen to my sister playing her records. I used to sneak, listen to my older brother playing his records. Always on my mind, this this rock and roll music. I used to go down in the basement and take a broomstick and put rubber bands all the way up and down and pretend to pluck the bass. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, I took up bongo drums because I wanted to be a beatnik too. You know, I did that too. And I used to cut white straws into cigarette-sized pieces and put baby powder up there so it looked like I was smoking. You don't want to know all this. Um, I, and, and the funny thing about that, though, is it never, ever occurred to me for a millisecond even while I was growing up with Elvis firmly in my mind, that he was a guy and I was a girl. That didn't go through my head. You know, it's crazy when you think of it. And then I remember one time, I forget what year this was. It must have been when I was eight or nine, I think. And um, my father came home from work. Another cement, you know, in my head and my heart. And he, you know, he's tired and he took his coat off and he had a, a single in his hand that obviously he had purchased. They were plastic, big ones, you know, whatever whatever you call them. Um, and I think they played it 33 and a third. Anyway, he walked in, you know, threw, put his coat on the hook, took his shoes off just back from work, and he threw this record on the dining room table. He just went, like with an attitude. And he looked at me, he looked at me. I happened to be standing there. He said, okay, okay, so the kid can sing. It was Love Me Tender by Elvis Presley. 
So your dad initially wasn't an Elvis fan. He wasn't, he wasn't. By doing that, he was saying he was. Okay, Mm -hmm. he can sing. You know, so he was saying it in his way. Okay, 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 you know. Because that that song, he sings beautifully. And then we fast forward there to, you know, all my music lessons. I took classical piano. I played quite good piano. Um, I took percussion. I was first chair in the percussion section at school, beating all the guys. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Did I like that? Oh, yeah. So um, then we started uh, again after... um, watching the Ed Sullivan show. It's so strange how these things kept repeating. It was 1964, and at the end of the show this time, he brought on the Beatles, and they were doing... I saw her standing there. I remember that. And uh, we all... We ran to the phone as soon as that performance is over. One of my sisters and me, the elder one, Patty, and we called these other two sisters who we knew, Nan and Mary Lou Ball, and then we got on the other phone. Everybody had an extension. We got on the phone with a girl that lived five doors down. And her dad was in my dad's group, his band. So it's all connected. And we all were screaming, you know, did you see the Beatles? Da, 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 that hair, la, da, 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 da. And somebody said, I think it might have been Patty. She said, um, why don't we form an all-girl band? Oh, yes. And then everybody spoke at once. It was so strange. Everybody spoke. And I'm usually real quick to talk, but for some reason, I didn't talk. And then I, and everybody was choosing an, an instrument. And finally, I said, hello, what about me? And my sister, Patty, said, you're going to play bass. And I said, okay, but I didn't care. It didn't matter that I already played, you know, percussion and piano, and it just didn't matter. Um, and I went to my dad and asked him, because he was a musician, and we had something of everything in the house. We had uh, two pianos, full pianos. We had an accordion, two accordions, one which is a French scale. We had a uh, mandolin, a banjo, ukulele, um, and a harp. And, and I said, do you have a bass? And he said, sure. So we're starting a band. So he gave me for my first bass, which I, I make musicians green when I tell them this. He gave me a 1957 Fender Precision for my first bass. Wow. Excuse me. <laughs> Honest to God, I didn't know it was a big bass. I just thought this is, I honestly didn't. I didn't even consider a small one because I asked him if he had a bass and this is what he gave me. So this is what I learned, you know, and I can't play a small bass. It feels like a toy to me. And yes, it's nearly as tall as me, but I never noticed it. Just like I don't do gender. I don't do size either. I think I'm six foot two. I think you're even bigger than that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but just to paint the picture because you know and that's all so fascinating and what an incredibly rich sort of musical environment it sounds like you were in just from you know very young or your really your whole life Um, but you were you were born in Detroit you had an American dad Hungarian mom uh, four sisters and a brother and uh, some adopted siblings as well. Um, so that family life was obviously something, particularly with you know playing in your dad's band and then having this band with your your sisters. Um, you know, were you conscious then that you might end up going off and doing your own thing? Yes, is the honest answer. Um, I oh, how do you say it? You okay? I'm not going to beat around the bush, okay? Because um, I can't do it anyway. Uh, I knew that I was different. Can we put it that way? I knew I was the uh, square peg in the round hole. I didn't quite fit. Some reason I didn't quite fit. And I also found out very young 
just by doing the family shows and everybody doing their little, you know, party piece, that I had the ability to hold the audience. I would notice whenever I did my little piece that the whole room would go quiet and everybody would watch me. So even very young, I knew I could entertain people. You see, I knew it. And I always felt right from when I was tiny that someday somebody was going to come up and tap me on the shoulder and say, come on, come with me, going to make you a star. And I was waiting for it my whole life. Nothing nasty in that, just I always felt it was going to happen. So when it did, I went. Because what choice do you have? Yeah, I, I knew my path for my whole life. Really, I knew my path. From seeing Elvis, age five and a half. Yeah. yeah. I knew where I was going. And my mother, she used to complain sometimes when I got much older. And we used to talk about that in my childhood. And she used to say, uh, she said it a lot. She said, I shouldn't have let you go in that damn, and she never swore, that damn rock and roll band so young. You were so young. And she said it so many times in front of you. I said to her, why didn't you just say no? And she said, it became a song. She said, because Susie, sometimes love is letting go. It's one of the nicest songs I've ever written. And it closed my one woman show on Zip that I did on the stage. I never forget that when she said that. It was just before she passed away. Her last trip here, sometimes love is letting go. She said, you were gonna do it anyway. You were going where you were going from so young, you were going there. So my mother even knew it, you know? That's beautiful. Um, it is. Okay, and, and now it is time for your second choice. Um, what was the first album that really shaped who you are and had a big impact? Well, this is without a doubt, and I have to tell a tiny little bit of a story. Um, there's a club in Detroit called The Chessmate, and we went to see a group out of New York. They were a psychedelic group called the Blues Magoos. They had one hit called You Ain't, you ain't Got Nothing Yet, You Ain't Seen Nothing, or something like that. Anyway, I've never seen a band right here in my face that, you know, the sound was so much it made you wave, you know, and they were psychedelic. And I was like, wow, it was my first psychedelic experience and I was a 60s teenager um, and then we ended up partying with them a little bit I was only 14 and the guy was 18 but I ended, I ended up talking to the bass player I ended up in his room somehow and um, he, I always remember it. I don't know if you can tell this on show but it's funny he said to me um, have you ever smoked pot and me being me sure I'd never done it in my life so he gave me a joint and me being me, I went, oh, it's nothing. Give me another one. So he gave me another one. So this is a 14-year-old who's never done anything. So all of a sudden, I was high, and I didn't know how to deal with it. And he said to me, he was very kind. He didn't do anything wrong. He knew I was underage. But he said, do you know Bob Dylan? And I said, no. And he said, I'm going to play you an album. So he played me Blonde, I'm Blonde. And the song stuck inside a mobile with the Memphis Blues again. I have never heard anything like it before in my life. I'm a Dylan fanatic, by the way. I'm anal about him. I will quote you lyrics. I'll make you sit next to me and I'll quote you his lyrics. But he says, oh, mama, can this really be the end to be stuck here inside a mobile with the Memphis Blues again? You see how much I listen? And I've never known anybody who can say, oh, mama, so many different ways. <laughs> And you get hooked on it, you know? Um, and I'm still, when I sit outside now, I still play Dylan nonstop. Uh, he's another Gemini like me. And he taught me the value in that one song of a lyric. And he has the ability to make me cry. I cry over blowing in the wind. 
I, I cry over that lyric. I don't know if anybody else does. I do. I cry over Lady Delay. I cry over Just Like a Woman. In fact, I did a wonderful version of that on my Quattro Scott and Powell album. One of the best vocals I ever did because I love the song so much. Anyway, I love this track. You might not be able to play it all, but it's it's Dylan at its best. It is my favorite Dylan album. Okay, perfect. So on that note, we're going to take a listen to Stuck Inside a Mobile with the Memphis Blues Again by Bob Dylan off the album Blonde on Blonde. Oh, mama, can this really be the end to be stuck inside a mobile with the Memphis Blues Again? Grandpa died last week And now he's buried in the rocks But everybody still talks That was Stuck Inside a Mobile with the Memphis Blues again by Bob Dylan off the record Blonde on Blonde uh, which was Susie Quattro's choice for the album that shaped who she is and had a big impact. Um, so... What brought you to the UK in 1971, having had this sort of sense that you were just waiting to be, you know, picked up isn't the right word. That sounds kind of somehow inappropriate. But, you know, you you knew what was going to happen. You were just waiting um, to be taken on that path uh, that you already saw, you know, before you. Um. I had been in the band, The Pleasure Seekers. We were kind of a show band. I'm going to give you a powdered history. So we did, um, you know, we were a girl band and we wore the mini skirts and did the show numbers and did the clubs and all that. We were always working. And I always, even with the mini skirt on, I always had to be different. I'd wear a top hat. You know, I'd do something to look so stupid. Anyway, so this band, band lasted up until 1969 ish, 8 ish, 8 9. And uh, we then did a festival with this show band in Detroit and it was one of my brother's shows and we died of death. We really did because the world had moved on as we were in that false world of clubs doing covers. The world had got heavy and you had your Led Zeppelins and your jamming and your this and that. So we did our normal show and we died of death and it was decided that we would change the band around. Um, my little sister would come in, sing lead and she had a good voice. She had more of that Led Zeppelin type voice. I didn't. I'm, 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 I'm what I am. And uh, it was decided I would take a little bit of a back seat, uh, which is okay. And I became really good on my bass in that 18 months that Cradle existed. And we wrote our own songs and everything. But I didn't like the band very much at all. I, I, it just wasn't a happy band for me. Um, but Electra Records came to see that, that band. Me at the back. I came up and sang two songs. Okay, I'm at the back playing bass, two songs, back I went. Jack Holtzman said, I want that girl. I don't like the band at all. I want that girl, Susie, whatever her name is there, pointed to me. That same week, Mickey Most came to Detroit with Jeff Beck. My brother got him to see the band. Again, he said, I don't like the band at all. I did two songs. I like her, and I did an Elvis song, by the way. Um, so I didn't know about it until about three months later when uh, the band was starting to break up. And in that time, I had been sending Cradle Tapes, which was the name of the band, to Mickey because everybody came and said, oh, he likes you, you know, send him some tapes. I had no idea. And then the band was kind of dispersing. 
And I wrote to my eldest sister again, Arlene, the one that was screaming at Elvis. And I said, I think the band's breaking up. What am I going to do? Da, 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 da. I had to try to figure out my next move. And she said, call Mickey Most. And I said, why? I've been sending him stuff and everything. Why should I call him? She said, because he only wanted you in the first place. That's the first time I heard of it. And then she said, and by the way, Electra Records wanted you too. I went, what? So I had no idea. Anyway, um, Jack Holtzman made me the offer to go to New York and get a guy band and become the new Janis Joplin. And Mickey Moe said, come to England and I'll make you into the first Susie Quattro. No brainer, right? Oh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and did you know what Susie Quattro was at that point, you know, in terms of the full realization? Um, I knew what she wasn't. In fact, I have to say, yes, I did, because even in The Pleasure Seekers, I did all the hard rocking numbers. You know, I wasn't the ballad girl. I was on there doing all the crazy dances. So, yeah, I was always that way. I always had a, a, a pension for... Um, the 50s star rock and roll, I actually said to Mickey when I first got to England, I want the drummer on um, one, two, three o'clock, four o'clock rock, because it's got that nice, he's got that nice laid back feel where he's almost falling off the drum kit. Uh, so yeah, I kind of yeah, did know who I was. We hadn't put it in the right frame yet, but um, yes, I knew I didn't fit there. I knew I was more than a bass player with my little sister singing Led Zeppelin copy songs. You know, this is not who I was. I was an entertainer. And by the time I got to England, having that training in the Pleasure Seekers, where I was the front person completely, then going back and just playing the bass for 18 months, then the two merged and um, became Susie Quattro. And, and it, there's something amazing about you, just in terms of sort of both watching you, but also talking to you and hearing about it, where it sounds like you never had any sort of sense of holding back you know there are some people that kind of are performers but also have that very introverted side or you know get a bit uncomfortable in the light spotlight and it's like no. <laughs> <laughs> sorry that doesn't compute i feel at home i feel like this is what the gods put me down on this earth for was to entertain people and and share and uplift so when i get on that stage i'm actually I'm actually in my spiritual home, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so then on, you know, on the image side, you know, it's that thing that I find amazing, which is, you know, why is it that the, the guys could be cool? You know, they could have this swagger, they could have this energy and, and, and then somehow you had that disconnect when it came to women and they had to be, you know, pretty or peppy or whatever it was, but just that swagger, you know, was that something that in terms of the image you ended up, you know, that was really your image. Did you always know that or did you kind of try out different styles and then get to? No, 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 Beatty. That, that one word that you just said, I'd say I was born with swagger and I always had attitude. That's how it is. I never thought about it. You know, I wasn't, I was more tomboy. You know, I'm still the same now. Um, Mickey always said that to me all the time when we used to talk in the early days. He'd say, you're unique. You're unique. That's all I ever heard. You're unique. So I guess I just skirted that, that, that ground, you know. I, I don't do gender. That's the only way I can explain it. Yeah. I, no, I listen. I completely understand. 
you know, nobody said to me, I can explain it better this way. I'm out there doing what I'm doing and, you know, uh, can the can. And, and nobody said to me, hold the bass like this, move like this, sing like this, look like it. Nobody told me to do these things. And I didn't copy anybody, although Elvis went into me. I'm not a copy of him. So I just had that that swagger. It was I guess I was born with it. I completely understand and I know exactly what you're talking about. But to have someone at that point in time that was not gonna be molded in any way, you know, someone that was really out there doing it their way um and you know there wasn't a sort of okay fine i'll do one shoot like this or you know whatever it is you would just you you weren't going to be molded no in fact mickey most often used to say i was very close to them he used to say nobody tells susie what to do you may you may suggest (laughs) i'm really proud of that And my husband once said to me, I've been with him 27 years now, we're having some kind of an argument or something, and I, and I said, you can't live long enough to control me. And his reply was, yes, I can. I just have to be very clever. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, you're going to have to work for it, you know. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I, I always have had a, innate sense you know and that moment that pivotal moment you know i went on the road i got an english band finally got a band went on the road supported slade and lizzie got my sound together doing all original material the band was coming together i was happy um chin and tap were brought in and, and they heard the whole set and they and it was all boogie very much can the can and they went away and wrote the three minute song and uh Mickey heard the record and he said, this is going to be a number one. He was right. It was. And then we talked about image and there was no, no choice for me. It was non-negotiable. I said, I'm going to wear leather. And I insisted. And Mickey was kind of against it because he said it was old fashioned, been done in the fifties and da, 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 da. And I said, no, Mickey, I said, I want to wear leather. And he finally gave in and he was very quiet for a minute. He was thinking, and then he said, what about a jumpsuit? And I said, okay, I I can be quite naive about things, you know, and since I don't play the gender card and I don't play the sex card as such, I didn't realize even that it was going to be a sexy outfit until I put it on, and then I went, oh, my God. Um, (laughs) I did. I had no idea, no idea, but I remember the moment. I talk about it in the film. I never forget it. And that we had that first photo session, and the, the the record was playing in the background, you know, can the can, you know, and I had my first jumpsuit on, snakeskin boots, and the boys were all on the ground around me, like collapsed, like I'd beaten them all up, and I and I and I say it, and I've done this in my one woman show too. It was what a moment, because the the photographers there, Garrett Maker, is one at the top in the business. He's done everybody, um, and he said, "Give me that Susie Quattro look," and I had one. Do you get that? All of a sudden, I had one. Yeah. I went, I went all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. Everything I'd done up to that moment, they just went like this. They all fit together, and I went, boom. There, there she was. That was the girl that was always there, and that was the girl that was going to run the rest of my life, you know? So, Susie, tell me about um, turning down a meeting with Elvis in in 74. <laughs> Everybody has that. Um I was in Memphis, it was 1974, 
I was on my first tour there after having some hits all from the rest of the world. All Shook Up was in the lower end of the charts. I did make the charts, my version, first album. And I was in the hotel room and the phone rang. And it was Elvis's people. So I just kind of went, mouth hanging open. And then he he got on the phone. And what a surreal moment. And, he, you know, he, uh, he said, um, I've heard your version of All Shook Up. And I think it's the best since my own so I'm dying I'm dying on the phone and he said would you like to come to Graceland and I went no thank you I'm very busy <laughs> <laughs> and I did it because I wasn't not nervous I wasn't ready to meet him yet I wanted to have maybe a few more hits I wanted to be more on the level so I didn't have to do that when I met him you do it anyway you know but um, and I didn't know he was going to pass away but there are so many Elvis things through my life I you know when I did my one woman show I think there was about nine of them I couldn't even do them all where he has made a appearance over and over and over again even when I got my role on happy days um I flew over from Japan to Los Angeles State asked me to fly, fly over an audition for the show I didn't know what the show was so I did and um I wore my own leathers because I had street leathers and stage leathers I love leather and I walked onto the set and the uh, producer, Gary Marshall, came up and he said, how clever of you to dress in the part. You know, I said, what the hell are you talking about? He said, oh, she's called Leather Tuscadero. Kind of went, oh, anyway, long story short. Um, they said, okay, I met the producer, met the fans, met, met the director. Go back to your hotel room, we'll give you a call. So I'm waiting for the phone to ring. I turned on the TV, waiting for the phone to ring. The phone rings. I picked it up. They said, hello, congratulations. You've got the role. We don't just want you for two. We want you for 15. So you're going to have to come down and get a contract. And I was all excited. The TV came on at that point, right at that point, as I'm taking the phone call. So happy. And it went, newsflash, the king is dead. Wow. You can't write this stuff. No. You can't write it. Then... And my mother always used to call me Elvis when I was young. When I was uh, coming back about three months later to do the first two episodes, um, they, they brought in a guy and they said, this man here is going to be making your costumes for the show. Okay. I said, okay, how do you do? He was nudie. Elvis's personal tailor. Oh my God. Excuse me. <laughs> He's just on my shoulder all the time. He's here all the time. And you must, when you get a chance, Google singing with angels um, I wrote that in tribute, and if I'd met Elvis, that song would not exist, and it has to exist. Their Elvis impersonators now do it. It's played at funerals. It's a cult hit, and I recorded it with James Burton, his guitar player, and the original Jordan Ayres, minus one who wasn't there anymore, in Nashville in his studio. So that was my path. Incredible, and it's it's that sense of sometimes having to zoom out to see how everything is connected you know particularly yes. particularly when you're following your your vision your instincts your intuition um it's just amazing so i guess there's no part of you that wishes on that phone call no no there's not and in fact i don't do regrets it's one of my mantras because even the bad stuff teaches you something and it's all meant to happen the only regret i do have and i'll say very quickly is when my mother was finally passing away and my sister called me i've been back and forth across the pond at least six times even going straight from her bedside to a gig so i i've done my bit and she said oh my god you remember the last time you saw her and you thought she looked really bad. Well, she looked healthy. Then I'm going, oh, Christ almighty. So she said, you better come over. 
And Mickey Mouse said to me, don't go. Don't go, Susie. You can't handle it. So I didn't go. And I spoke to her all the time, and she seemed to be okay with it. But I kind of wish I had. That's probably my only regret. I wish I had gone. But I do have the nicer memory of her. But, you know, I didn't go. And just, you know, you're talking about Happy Days and Leather Tuscadero, which, you know, it's, it's a whole, it's like a whole other career um, in some ways. Did that feel as natural to you as getting on stage for a concert? Sure, you get nervous on the first time and you're walking out to the audience, okay, and you have never acted before. But to be quite honest, I just took her like a duck to water. And in fact, I checked my, my memory of it. I was talking to Ron Howard not that long ago. And I said to him, I'm curious. I said, you know, did it ever feel to you like I was a new, green, brand new to the show actress? He said, no. It just felt like you had always been there. So he sort of confirmed what I felt, that I just was always there. So I don't know why that is. I knew I always knew I could act anyway. And I, I don't act, by the way, I become. Well, and also, I think it's that sense of like being a renaissance or renaissance, however it's pronounced. You know, when you're that kind of artist, you just see creativity and storytelling as, you know, well, whatever the outlet, it's the same thing. So it's not really any difference in the same way that the, the boxes and the labels don't apply. Also, creativity and being an artist is, is limitless. Correct. There's a there's a instinct that I perform from. There's an instinct that I create from. And that instinct remains the same no matter which genre I'm doing in this wonderful business that I'm in. You know, it's it's always the same. My channels are always open. It gets noisy up there sometimes. But I tune in and I, I tune in. It comes in and then I give it out. That's my job. So. Tell me now, in 1989, you're one of the first rock and roll acts to play Russia, um, half a million people. What was that like at that time? Well, I took the kids. My husband, my ex-husband didn't want me to, but I said, I'm not going for three months and leaving the kids home. So they came with this. Glasnost was just beginning. So we saw the Russia trying to be the new Russia. Um, I'll never forget it as long as I live, that tour. It really affected me. It's too long to go into. It just really affected me. So much so that when I got home after three months being there, I walked into my home here, this beautiful home I live in, and I said to my ex, this is decadent. What are we doing in a house like this? Oh, jeez. But you still have that house. You, even though you said it was decadent, you do still have that house, right? I've lived here since 1980. This house drew me to it. It's amazing, this house. You'd love it. You would love it. Um, there's plenty of energies here, plenty of spirits, all friendly. I'm supposed to be here. Uh, it's Elizabethan Manor House, finished in 1590. So you're never alone, you know. And just before we move on to the music you're going to send into space, um, a question about you that is, you know, really interesting is obviously you're so embracing of this, like Susie, entertainer, communicator, you know, not holding back in any way. Um, But you're also very grounded and you're very down to earth and you're very humble. And is that in part because you have what you call the ego room in your house that you keep (laughs) things in check? I do. I always talk about that. I think everybody should have one. Um, 
I do have my feet on the ground, and I am humble, and I do have the ego room. And you have to go up two flights of stairs to get to it. It's on the third floor. You can bang your head. You can trip. You can fall. It's an analogy, but it's a true analogy. Um, if, if that's not a double negative. Anyway, you finally get to this big wooden door, and it's a very heavy, heavy wooden door. And on the door, I had printed a plaque, a big brass plaque, and it says, Ego Room, Mind Your Head. So you go in and you see the big red book on the table. This is your life. All my guitars, some of my favorite basses, all my suits, hanging up jackets, suits, jumpsuits, everything. There's um, videotapes, CDs, scrapbooks, tons and tons of stage passes, hats, merchandise, pictures on every single surface. And you go up there and it's the quietest room in the house, funny enough, that the ego room is the quietest room. Isn't that funny? And... Um, when you're done in that room, you come out and you shut the door. And that's how I live my life. You shut the door. And now I have to ask, what is the music you would send into space? Now, is this my Nat King Cole one? This is your Beethoven. Oh, my Beethoven. <laughs> oh, oh, you just said it. I forgot. See, I, didn't, I don't have the list in front of me. Okay, Beethoven. It's, and I don't know how you pronounce it. Is it pronounced Pathique, I think. Pathique. I think that's how you do it. Um, I... I do. I did study classical piano, and I play quite well. I've got my books here, and I still play. Um, and I think Beethoven is the best because he's the most accessible. So, you know, when he played a melody, you remembered it, you know. And I love him that he was kind of crazy, and even in the middle of his beautiful pieces, he would go into this crazy bit and then come back, you know. Oh, it's okay, I'm back normal now. Um, and, and that is my favorite Beethoven piece. It just... It's just beautiful. I could listen to it, not stop, and never get tired of it. So, yes, that should go into space. And if an alien hears that, they're bound to think, well, we're something. Well, and who knows? Beethoven was probably an alien. Probably <laughs> one of them, yeah. Like Einstein, you know. <laughs> so now we're going to take a listen to um, Beethoven's Pathétique. was Beethoven's Pathétique, and that was the music that Susie Quattro would like to send into space. Um, and is there also a sentiment that you'd like to send into space? Um, God. Well, the word that came to mind immediately was, was embrace. I don't know why. Embrace. Perfect. So the, okay. tell me about Suzy Q, the movie, um, which came out last year. How do you feel in terms of, well, firstly, it's always, must always be incredibly strange seeing your life on the big screen. Um, but do you feel that it captured you truthfully? And was there anything that you felt was really left out? I think it was a fabulous documentary. I'm very happy with it. It captured me totally truthfully. It's what I wanted it to do. I insisted that it be warts and all. I insisted to the director, even if it's cringe, even if I'm cringing and I'm uncomfortable, if it's true and it's important to the story, it stays in there. So absolutely, he did a fabulous job. I couldn't be happier. And, you know, when you see, like, your own movie, obviously there's also the sense of, well, we have 
limited time here and um and you know we've moved to the the sad part of the show which is imagining a world without Susie Q so um on that note have you thought about the song that you would like to have play at your memorial yeah sure it's been in my will as long as I've had a will um when I fall in love by Nat King Cole just simply because you can go through your entire life with that song from A to Z so now we're going to take a listen to When I Fall in Love by Nat King Cole. And the moment I can feel that You feel that way too when I fall in love with you. That was When I Fall in Love by Nat King Cole, and that was the song that Susie Quattro would like to have play at her memorial. Um, and it's that is written into your will, is that correct? In the will, yep. When did you write that in? Oh, God, a long time ago. I always said it. You know, every big moment in my life, if I need to just reflect and feel and get a few tearful and go through this thing and that thing, and that that's the song I do too. I don't know why. It's such a wonderful sentiment. When I fall in love, it'll be forever, you know? Or I'll never fall in love. Oh, gets me every time. And particularly, you know, Nat's version of it? He does it like nobody else. Nobody can croon like Nat King Cole. He goes straight to the hurt. So when we were last having a chat, you were telling me about um, your grave project, (laughs) which sounds very ominous. (laughs) So do you know what you're going to have? Well, it's a silly question. What is going to be written on your tombstone, Susie? Okay, I'm going to have two because I'm Gemini. But... um, this and I'm allowed, and it's my book anyway. I am doing it now. I'm doing it now. So I'm only going to give you one. I've got a lot of famous quotes. Um, did I get yours yet? I'm sending it to you after this. You better. Okay, you better. Okay, so mine is going to be two sides. The first side's going to say, now I get it. <laughs> <laughs> the second side's going to say, too many dreams, too little time. Oh, it's lovely. That's really lovely. And also sort of, yeah, very reflective of two outlooks. Yes. So with with that all in mind, is legacy something that's always been important to you? Yes, and I have left behind a hell of a legacy. Um, I like to think I made a difference. I like to think I made a lot of people happy. I gave a lot of myself. I didn't take anything back. Uh, yes, I like to think I was loved. I think that's a bit of an understatement because you did genuinely change the course of the history of rock and roll. Um, you know, and sometimes, unfortunately, when I say unfortunately, it's not like that's a negative thing, but, you know, the cross to bear sometimes is when you're a pioneer, you know, it's like the world has to catch up with you. Um, but, you know, you think of all the people, all the artists that wouldn't have existed without you doing what you you did and what you are doing well just just before we close because i know that we're coming to the close now i will say one thing Beatty, and it only dawned on me when 
after I made this documentary. Um, so this is hindsight. Cherie gave me an award. Cherie Curry gave me an award at uh, Shebox ceremony in January. And when she got up, you know, when you were there, when she got up to make the speech, she, she cried. Uh, recently, I was doing an interview with her and Kathy Valentine. We're on Zoom. Kathy starts to cry. Another friend of mine from the Baby Animals, uh, Susie DeMarchi. She ended up coming here. We worked together in Australia many times. She ended up coming, spending the night. I took her up in the eagle room. She started to cry.